Hi folks, welcome back to Dose Makes the Poison the Toxcast. I'm your friendly neighborhood forensic toxicologist and host, Kevin. This is episode 17 of this show, and I hope you are doing well out there. But right now, we're going to jump right into this one. There's no time to waste for this episode. So the Summer Olympics for 2020 in Tokyo, Japan were supposed to happen last year. Hence the name, the 2020 Summer Olympics. But due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the pandemic that seems to be waning, but make no mistake, it's still ongoing. But the Summer Games were postponed to a start of July 2021. And guess what it is? It's July 2021. And if you've been living under a rock, you may not have heard the recent news. Shakari Richardson, to be exact, has been in the news. And if you don't know who she is, she is an American track and field runner who competes in the 100 meters and the 200 meters. And she is freaking fast. As a freshman at Louisiana State University, LSU, as she was 19 years of age, she became a name in sprinting um, when she ran a 10.75 second 100 meter run, which broke the NCAA championships record for 100 meters. That time in the 100 meters is one of the 10 fastest in women's sprinting history. So again, at 19 years old, she ran one of the 10 fastest 100-meter dashes in women's history. Well, in April 2021, just a few months ago, she ran a 10.72-second 100 meters, which is the sixth fastest time ever. So again, like I said, she's freaking fast. But during the Olympic trials for the United States in June 2021, just last month, she qualified for the now-moved Summer Olympic Games by running a 10.86-second 100-meter run. And then, on July 1st, 2021, this happened. With a blazing time and standout style, Shakari Richardson recently punched her ticket to Tokyo. At the Olympic trials, the 21-year-old Dallas native won the 100-meter dash in a blazing 10.86 seconds, making her the fastest woman in America. But now it appears her Olympic dreams may have been put on hold. A U.S. Olympic source telling NBC News she failed a drug test after her finals win, testing positive for THC the chemical found in marijuana. According to her lawyers, Shakari has been suspended from the Olympic team, and her failed test may cause her to lose her spot on Team USA entirely. Her Olympic trial results were automatically disqualified when she tested positive. That means she won't be allowed to compete in her signature event, the 100 meters. But there appears to be an outside chance she could compete in a different event. What's unclear is whether she will appeal the test result and the disqualification or how long her suspension will last. Shakari Richardson had tested positive for THC following her 10.86 second 100 meter Olympic qualifying run. 
And this is where I become interested. Because this positive drug test kept one of the fastest women runners of all time out of the Olympics. The largest international sports competition in the world. She admitted that she had consumed cannabis as a coping mechanism when she heard from a reporter that her biological mother had died. After hearing that news, she decided she needed to use cannabis. It's important to note as well is that she was not selected for the 4x100 meter relay team by USA Track and Field, even though she would have been eligible to do so as she was only suspended for 30 days. And if you look at the timeline, that 30-day suspension would have been up by the time of the 4x100 meter relay team, but she wasn't picked. So, okay, there, there's a bit to talk about here. This is a toxicology podcast. Let's first talk about THC, what it is, what it does to the body, what the body does to it, how it's tested for, and finally, and probably the most important part of this, why is it tested for and should it be tested for in sports? And let me be upfront though. I am not taking this into a long form podcast episode because cannabis pharmacology and toxicology could be discussed for hours. And I want to keep this to around 30 minutes. So we're not going long here. So what is marijuana or cannabis or THC? Some people refer to cannabis and some people refer to it as marijuana. But cannabis is a genus of annual flowering plants. The number of species in this genus is disputed, but there are typically two or three main ones discussed. Cannabis sativa, cannabis indica, and cannabis ruderalis. The plants are native to Eastern Asia, but are distributed and cultivated all over the world. Overall, cannabis plants contain various chemicals, uh, the last I saw, they contained more than 500 different compounds in the plants, which among those 500, at least uh, 113 were compounds called cannabinoids or phytocannabinoids. Some are major, some are minor. The major cannabinoid is tetrahydrocannabinol and both delta-8 THC or tetrahydrocannabinol and delta-9 THC or tetrahydrocannabinol exist. Other compounds include tetrahydrocannabinolic acid or THCA, cannabidiol, CBD, I'm sure you've heard of that, cannabidiolic acid, CBDA, cannabinol, CBN, cannabigerol, CBG, cannabivirin, CBV, tetrahydrocannabivirin, THCV, and many others. I'm not going to go through all of these. Other compounds in the plant are terpenes and sesquiterpenes, which include myrcene, linalool, limonene, alpha-pinene, alpha-humulene, and carophylline. So what does this stuff do to the body? For the purposes of this discussion, we're only going to be really talking about THC, and specifically delta-9-THC to be exact which is the main psychoactive 
component of cannabis. So historically, the plant is dried and then smoked recreationally. THC can also be used via vaping or in edibles like gummies, cookies, and chocolate. If you look back in history, THC was first isolated and the structure elucidated by synthesis in 1964 by Raphael Meshalem at the Wiseman Institute of Science in Israel. And its pharmacology has been studied over the last six to seven decades. It's one of the most studied substances that we have in pharmacology and toxicology. Delta-9 THC binds to cannabinoid receptors in the body. It binds to the cannabinoid system. Specifically, cannabinoids receptors 1 and 2 in the body. So cannabinoid receptor 1 is called CB1. Cannabinoid receptor 2 is called CB2. So CB1 is primarily located in the central nervous system, which is the brain and spinal cord, while CB2 is primarily expressed in the gastrointestinal system, the immune system, the peripheral nervous system, though there is evidence of CB2 in the central nervous system. THC binds to these receptors and acts as a partial agonist, which means it binds to those receptors, activates them, but only has partial efficacy or partial ability to produce a maximal functional response relative to something called a full agonist, which binds to the receptor, activates the receptor, and produces that maximal response. So only a partial agonist only produces a partial response. The effects that it produces will vary, of course, as with most drugs, according to the dose consumed, the potency of the substance, and also the route of administration. It is smoked or, or vaped, or is it taken orally like an edible? That all has a very huge effect on the effects that are produced. So when smoked or vaped, onset of effects are seen within minutes, and effects usually last uh, for a few hours. If taken orally, the substance needs to be absorbed via the gastrointestinal tract, and effects normally take... 30 to 90 minutes or so to, to occur, and then they last for about four to six hours. At typical recreational dosages, effects on the body include things like relaxation, euphoria, relaxed inhibitions, a sense of well-being, altered time and space perception, lack of concentration, impaired learning and memory, alterations in thought formation and concentration, drowsiness, sedation, and some mood changes. Physiological effects include tachycardia, red eyes, dry mouth, increased appetite, and vasodilation. So what does the body do to it? When you consume THC, consume cannabis, what does the body do to that? So when THC is used, it enters the body and it's biotransformed in the liver by the cytochrome P450 family of enzymes. These enzymes include CYP2C9, CYP2C19, CYP2D6, and CYP3A4. And it's metabolized to hundreds of detectable metabolites. But it's mainly changed to 11-hydroxy-THC which is psychoactive on its own, much like THC is. 11-hydroxy-THC is further oxidized to 
11 nor 9 carboxy THC, also known as THC carboxylic acid metabolite or THC carboxy or THC carboxylic THC carboxylic acid metabolite or THC COOH. THC carboxylic acid metabolite is an inactive metabolite. It does not produce a pharmacological effect like parent THC or 11-hydroxy-THC does. This carboxylic acid metabolite is further conjugated with glucuronic acid in phase 2 metabolism and then excreted out of the body via the feces and urine. So detection windows for the metabolite can be quite extensive and will vary according to the dose used. Duration of use, the individuals using the substance, uh, it's not uncommon that a frequent user of cannabis could have detectable levels of metabolite in their urine for up to 30 days or longer. Most infrequent users will find that they eliminate the drug metabolite within a few days up to a week or so after use. So how is THC tested for in a laboratory? We can test for THC in forensic toxicology using many different types of instrument platforms. Many times the initial screening test is an immunoassay test, whether it's for blood or urine, but the initial screen can also be completed by gas chromatography with mass spectrometry or liquid chromatography with mass spectrometry, either triple quadrupole MS or high resolution MS, like time of flight mass spectrometry. Uh, confirmatory testing along with the quantitative analysis, so how much is there, is usually completed by gas chromatography with mass spectrometry, gas chromatography with triple quadrupole mass spectrometry, or liquid chromatography with triple quadrupole mass spectrometry. In blood, we test for cannabis via the parent drug and its metabolites. So in blood, we look for parent THC and at a minimum, the THC carboxylic acid metabolite. Some labs also test for the 11-hydroxy-THC metabolite. Normal reporting limits for blood testing are 0.5 to 1 nanogram per milliliter for THC and 1 to 10 nanograms per milliliter for THC carboxylic acid metabolite. And I've seen uh, detection limits or reporting limits for 11-hydroxy-THC uh, being anywhere from 1 nanogram per milliliter all the way up to 20 nanograms per milliliter. In urine, labs typically only monitor the carboxylic acid metabolite, and reporting limits for that positive determination vary widely. Some labs have extremely low limits, something like 5 to 15 nanograms per milliliter. Some labs have high limits, 5 or 50 to 300 nanograms per milliliter. And as is always the case in toxicology or drug testing, your reporting limits are always going to be a function of what you're trying to do with the test and how it's being applied. So again, you might have low levels, you might have high levels for reporting limits. Why is cannabis tested in sports? Well, the World Anti-Doping Agency publishes its international standard prohibited list every year. And it's publicly available on the internet. All you have to do is go to Google or whatever your search engine of choice is and search 
WADA drug list, W-A-D-A drug list in the specific year. So this year would be 2021 and you will find it. And every athlete participating in a sport that answers to WADA is very, very familiar with this list. But this prohibited list uh, describes substances that are banned at all times and those that are prohibited only during in competition. Compounds prohibited at all times include things like anabolic steroids, peptide hormones, growth factors, beta-2 agonists, hormone and metabolite modulators, diuretics, and other masking agents. Uh, substances banned during in-competition include things like stimulants, narcotics, which kind of as an aside, I hate that word, narcotic. Please don't use that word if you're out there. I hate that word. Uh, glucocorticoids and cannabinoids fit, fit under this section of the prohibited list. Uh, the term in competition is defined as the time period commencing just before midnight on the day before competition until the end of competition and the sample collection process. So the night before into when you give your sample. Those are pro drugs that are prohibited in competition. That's what that means. So tetrahydrocannabinol is listed as a substance of abuse alongside cocaine, MDMA, and heroin. WADA defines quote-unquote substance of abuse as substances that are frequently abused in society outside of the context of sport. So again, keep in mind that according to the prohibited list, THC or cannabinoids are not banned as performance-enhancing substances, but a drug of abuse in the list. And we'll come back to this because it's a little confusing here once you get into the details. So the United States Anti-Doping Agency, or USADA, is a WADA signatory. Basically, it, you sign up and you have to follow WADA's rules. And the USADA has a really good website where they publish all of the sanctions they hand out and the reasons for those sanctions. So I was bored one night and decided to look into the cannabinoid sanctions. And according to the USADA site, and remember, this is the USADA. This is just United States athletes, not the world, the United States. There have been 36 instances of sanctions for cannabinoid use since 2009, with, of course, the most recent being Shakari Richardson's positive test last month. In 2021, so this year, there have been three other people sanctioned for cannabinoid use. Kamari Montgomery from track and field, Tate Jackson from swimming, and James Ellis, who's a weightlifter. And if you look back year by year by year, you'll see about three to five people are typically sanctioned for use every single year. So again, 36 total instances since 2009, and various sports were affected. Sports include track and field, wrestling, mixed martial arts or MMA, weightlifting, handball, skateboarding, diving, boxing, judo, taekwondo, cycling, triathlon, skiing, and swimming. Of those 36 instances, four of them were repeat violations. So four of those people tested positive two separate times 
in two different years. So that really only means there were 32 different individuals that had tested positive and sanctioned for cannabinoids. So of those 32 individuals, the sex breakdown was 71.9% men, 28.1% women that were sanctioned. The information listed on the website only gives general description of the actual sanction. So things like one month, three month, six month suspension, loss of results, those sorts of things. There is no other information listed. So we don't know race, ethnicity, age, or any other information about the sanctions. So curiously though, if you get, keep looking down the list, there are 41 other entries on the USADA site from 2001 and before that have the names removed along with dates of sanction. But the affected sport and general description of that sanction remains listed. So they, these were people that were sanctioned for cannabinoid use, but their names are no longer listed. And you can't click on a link to see who it was or what specifically they were uh, sanctioned for. So I'm not exactly sure what's up with those entries, but um, yeah, there are many other people on there. They're just not officially listed by name any longer. So now we are to the larger and more important question here. Should cannabis be tested for in sports? This is a huge question. One that I have my own personal opinions on, but I believe all of this really was kicked off in 1998-1999 when Canadian snowboarder Ross Ribagliati tested positive for THC metabolite at the 1998 Winter Olympics. Um, he won a gold medal that year, but was disqualified at, and he lost his medal. See, WADA didn't exist at that time. But the International Olympic Committee, or the IOC, did list cannabis as a banned drug because of its illegality. It wasn't legal anywhere. It wasn't legal recreationally in the United States at that time. It was hardly legal around the world. And just for the record, Ross had a THC metabolite concentration in his urine equal to 17.8 nanograms per milliliter. At that time the threshold for a positive test was 15 nanograms per milliliter. Ross argued that his positive test was from passive exposure or secondhand smoke inhalation. WADA was created in 1999 following all of this mess with Ross. And in 2013, they actually amended their rules on cannabinoids and changed the reporting threshold to 150 nanograms per milliliter. So it went from 15 to 150. It went up tenfold. And this was to make sure they were going to try to weed out the people that could potentially really have been used a long time ago and it just stuck around in someone's system or someone that was kind of exposed for to secondhand cannabis smoke because it is possible, not very probable, but it is possible to have low levels of THC metabolite in your urine from passive exposure. Again, not probable, but it is possible. Two different things. And to this day, Ross still maintains his positive test was due to passive inhalation. Okay. 
So is cannabis actually performance enhancing? Is it a PED? Is it a performance enhancing drug? When you look at it from a pain and recovery aspect, it's probably not any more performance enhancing than something like ibuprofen, naproxen, acetaminophen, acetylsalicylic acid, or aspirin. Um, and all of those are allowed. Remember that the performance effects of cannabis are distorted perception of time and space, difficulty in thinking, loss of coordination, impaired memory and learning, all of which is definitely not going to enhance any person's performance in an athletic competition. There was a paper published about 10 years ago in 2011 in the journal Sports Medicine, and it was titled Cannabis in Sport, Anti-Doping Perspective, and it was written by Marilyn Hustis, Irene Mazzoni, and Oliver Rabin. Doctors Hustis and Mazzoni were with the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, or NIDA, the National Institutes of Health, NIH, in the United States, and Dr. Rabin was with the World Anti-Doping Agency out of Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And in this paper, it gives a good outline of their thought process or potentially their thought process regarding cannabis prohibition in sports. So let's take a, just a quick look at this. When the WADA list was created in 2004, the criteria for inclusion of a substance in the prohibited list was number one, its potential to enhance performance. Number two, risk for the athlete's health, and number three, violation of the spirit of the sport. A substance would be included in that prohibited list if it met at least two of three criteria. So the authors of this paper concluded that cannabis or THC met all three bullet points under that criteria. And before you say, hey, Kevin, that's not, that, that, that's not, no, let's just talk about this for a minute. So as a forensic toxicologist, this is my opinion based on experience and history. The inclusion of THC as a performance enhancing substance is very, very dubious at best. Um, the authors argue that there's evidence of cannabis causing vasodilation, bronchodilation. Uh, cannabis could improve oxygenation to tissues. It can decrease anxiety, fear, depression, tension. Yeah, sure. Cannabis aids in relaxation, sleep, recovery. Yeah, all of that could be true. All of it may be true. All of it is true. But no one is running a race while under the influence of cannabis. No one is running a 10.7 second 100 meter dash while under the influence of cannabis. So again, the inclusion to me is dubious at best. Cannabis isn't any more performance enhancing than taking ibuprofen or some other medication for pain or a sleep aid medication. So does it meet this criteria? I personally don't think so. I mean, again, remember all of the effects we mentioned earlier. Loss of coordination, impaired memory learning, drowsiness. Yet not something performance enhancing and not something in the same vein as other PEDs like anabolic steroids, EPO, blood doping, human growth hormone, or HGH. So 
again, dubious at best, in my opinion. The author stated that cannabis use fits underneath the second criteria, which is called risk for the athlete's health. The authors of the paper argued that since acute effects of cannabis use included increased heart rate or tachycardia, dizziness, disorientation, sometimes paranoia, that it, was that it could be detrimental or could harm the athlete during competition. And also included were effects like loss of vigilance, increased reaction time, short-term memory loss. Chronic effects listed in the paper include decreased cognitive performance, potential uh, pulmonary toxicity following smoking, cannabis smoke may induce bronchial irritation, chronic cough and wheezing. So in other words, cannabis is a drug with effects. Those effects were determined bad, so it fits under this specific criteria. And to me, if you, if you look between criteria one and two, this is kind of like a bit speaking out both sides of your mouth. In criteria one, you argue that it's a performance enhancer. In criteria two, you argue that it has detrimental effects on performance. You can't have it both ways. I mean, that's my opinion, but you cannot have it both ways. It cannot be a performance enhancer and then have serious detrimental effects on the athlete's health and sports performance. And lastly is this, this spirit of the sport criteria, which is one that doesn't make sense to me at all. Even the authors of the paper state that this is the most difficult criteria to define as it does not rely on any scientific facts, but ethical and societal considerations. They say some of these considerations include ethics, fair play, honesty, health, excellence and performance, character and education, fun and joy, teamwork, dedication and commitment, respect for rules and law respect for self and other participants and that these values are contrary to doping and that cannabis is considered an illegal substance in most of the world. So the consumption of marijuana or cannabis or other drugs contradicts the fundamental aspects of the spirit of the sport. And I'm going to quote directly from that paper quote, Use of illicit drugs that are harmful to health and that may have performance-enhancing properties is not consistent with the athlete as a role model for young people over the world. End quote. Well, I'm going to interject my opinion again here. Of all of these criteria here, the spirit of the sport is 100% straight-up, grade-A, all-American bunk especially with a substance that is legal in many places now. And one that is being now reevaluated in various locations around the globe. I mean, when these WADA lists were first constructed, sure, cannabis wasn't legalized for recreational use anywhere in the United States. But in 2012, Colorado and Washington did just that and set off a rapid-fire chain of events with legalization. And if you look at the United States today, as of this month, 2021, July 2021, 18 states and the District of Columbia, D.C., have legalized recreational cannabis. 13 states have decriminalized it. 
36 states and D.C. have legalized medical use of cannabis. Though cannabis does remain a Schedule One controlled substance at the federal level, it has been legalized in several states recreationally and medicinally. If you look around the world, cannabis is legalized or decriminalized for recreational use in many countries. And hey, let's just list them because I have the list right in front of me. Antigua and Barbuda, Argentina, Australia, Austria, Belgium, Belize, Bermuda, Bolivia, Canada, Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, Croatia, Czech Republic, Dominica, Ecuador, Estonia, Georgia, Israel, Italy, Jamaica, Luxembourg, Malta, Mexico, Moldova, Netherlands, Paraguay, Peru, Portugal, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Slovenia, South Africa, Spain, Switzerland, Trinidad and Tobago, and Uruguay all have legalized recreational marijuana in some form. And there are other numerous countries that also allow for the use of medical cannabis or cannabis-derived pharmaceutical medications. I'm not going to list all of those, but again, see, times are changing. So getting back to the current situation with the 2021 Olympics, is it fair that Shakari Richardson is not in the Olympics because of a positive THC urine test? Well, if you ascribe to the rules are the rules sort of perspective, then yes, it's fair. But life is more nuanced than that. We don't live in a truly dichotomous world. The other crucial question here that needs to be asked and answered, but should have been asked years ago, not three weeks prior to the 2021 Olympics, should cannabis be tested for at all and prohibited in or out of competition? I mean, times are changing, people. Times are changing. We see this around the world. We see this in the United States. It's probably time for WADA to at least look at the rules and possibly change with the times. I mean, this isn't unprecedented change here. They have changed in the past. Remember, they, in 2013, they changed the uh, reporting limit from 15 nanogram per mil to 150 nanogram per mil of THC metabolite in urine. And up until 2004, caffeine was, was a prohibited substance. And in 2018, alcohol or ethanol was removed from the overall prohibited list. But it remains banned in a few sports still. So maybe cannabis is next. Maybe this is how WADA should approach it, just like they do with alcohol. Ban it in just the sports that it makes sense. Maybe they need to look at it from that aspect. This friendly neighborhood forensic toxicologist thinks it's high time to do so. And maybe we won't ever have a situation like this again, where a star athlete, an athlete deserving of competing in the Olympic Games, in international competition at the highest level, is held back because of outdated views on a substance. So if you like what you're hearing on the show, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Send me an email at dosemakesthepoisonpodcast at gmail.com. If you are on Twitter, go check out my Twitter feed, at Toxcast, T-O-X-C-A-S-T. 
if you are on Facebook, search for the Dose Makes the Poison podcast page and give it a like. I'll be back in August for episode 18 of Dose Makes the Poison, the ToxCast. Until next time, friends and family, go Team USA, and always remember to never practice toxicology in a vacuum.